All right. Well, one of the ways that the book of Acts is encouraging is it shows us how early Christianity you know, it spread across cultural and ethnic and you know, socioeconomic lines quite supernaturally. Um, as a story that we're about to read, the story of Philip and the eunuch from Ethiopia are going to demonstrate. And this, just, this happens to be one of my favorite passages in the Bible because I think that there is... Um, a playfulness about it, or at least there's a lot of opportunity to try and, and be imaginative when reading it. So uh, hopefully you'll like the direction my imagination runs with it. We're in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. Uh, earlier in the chapter, a persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and um, that was in, you know, right after the martyrdom of Stephen. We talked about um, that passage last week. Or I think it was last week. And uh, Christians had to flee to different parts of the Roman Empire. Some fled to the north into the land of Samaria to go among the Samaritans. And, you know, there was just a tortured history of, of racial strife between Samaritans and Jews. But one of the men, the Christians who goes there, Philip, he preaches the gospel. Samaritans believe um, these others are saved. And then after that, we read in 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Well, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Uh, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, well, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave him orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly, I don't know, took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at uh, Azotus, and he traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's pray once again. Our Father in heaven, we call upon you, we pray to you, that you would open our hearts and our minds right now, that you... Um, that you would work among us. I mean, we want to see you bring those who are outside of our community um, into a faith-based relationship with you, just as it happened with this eunuch. Um, we, we want to see those, especially those who we wouldn't even expect to become Christians, um, brought by your Spirit into new life. And so we ask you, like we sincerely, earnestly ask you, Father, that you let us see the Spirit work among us in that way. And we ask it, in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Okay, I've got four characters. The first is a runner. The second is a sufferer. No, is that right? It's either sufferer. The third is a seeker. And the fourth is a newborn. 
First of all, the runner. Philip, okay, who is the character? We jumped right into the story. Uh, here we have a Jewish man, likely a convert to Judaism, who was selected by the early church in Jerusalem to care for the poor and the vulnerable in the city. Uh, an angel comes to Philip. Um, he's a talented guy. He can preach. He can teach. He leads people to faith in Jesus. After that, an angel comes, and he gives him a very strange message. He says, basically, go on this road in the desert in the middle of nowhere. Like, go, you know, probably during the hottest part of the day. And once you're there, I just want you to stop and listen. He says, okay, I'll do it. And he you know, travels a long distance. He goes south of Jerusalem on this road, off the road to Gaza. And when he's listening, he hears the Holy Spirit give him a new message. And the message is this. See that chariot over there? Uh, go catch up to it. And we got a picture of what I think would have been like a, an Egyptian chariot at that time. So verse 30, it says that Philip, and this is important, Philip ran he ran to the chariot. Now, there's a good reason he needed to run to the chariot. And do you know what that reason is? Because the chariot was moving. <laughs> and I think the chariot is moving the entire time through the story. So I want you to picture the scene. We have a cabinet official, a high-powered government official, who has unrolled in his lap a scroll that he's reading aloud. And he looks over to his right as he's like merrily going down the road in his chariot. And like, behold... A Jewish man is running beside me here. <laughs> uh, and he's like, what? what? What's going on here? And maybe we can picture Philip, you know, like, <sighs> as he is, you know, panting out of breath. And Philip says, I heard you reading something as he's running along. And oh, what is it that you were reading? And I mean, what is a, a eunuch, an, an official going to say to a man who is running beside his chariot? He's probably going to say, why am I talking to you? <laughs> um, you know, driver, speed up. Let's, let's blow this joint. Um, how, how would any ordinary eunuch in a chariot respond to a question like that? Basically, beat it scram, like, you know, I, I'm not interested. There would have been absolutely no reason for a, a eunuch like that to speak with Philip. I mean, they're, they're complete opposites. We're told that the eunuch is a CFO, a chief financial officer of an African nation, a cabinet-level official in the Queen's government, very wealthy, powerful, we'd assume, you know, super smart. Philip is, like, his entire opposite, Right. In terms of ethnicity and geography and station of life, Philip, um, the Jews had a very, made a very big deal out of circumcision. He is circumcised and the, the eunuch is, is, is castrated. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot more opposite than that. I mean, the most natural thing for a eunuch to say is like, I don't have conversations with men like you. And the most natural thing for Philip to say is, I don't run after chariots like yours. <laughs> But here we have, here we simply have the Holy Spirit doing something surprising, like totally surprising. And, and um, I've got to believe that that is, that tells us something about our God and about sort of the heartbeat of the Holy Spirit, that our God is a God who does, it, he does write surprising encounters into the story of, of our lives. You know, one of the things I think we can learn about this, it's pretty obvious, but the, the direction of the Spirit. The Spirit directs us to leap over, you know, ethnic, cultural, social stations, and life boundaries, which is very unnatural to any one of us. I mean, humanity's natural instinct 
is to love the familiar more than the foreign, of course. Our natural inclination is to love and prefer those nearest and most similar to us. And yet, that never seems to be the heartbeat of Jesus in the scripture. That never seems to be the movement of the Spirit in the Bible. I mean, it's Jesus who was always saying to his disciples, like, the kingdom is not just for you. It is not just for Israel. It's not just for the family of Abraham. Like, we have to go to all people, all socioeconomic, all sociolinguistic groups, all ethnicities. And just like um, maybe we are resistant to that message today, they were resistant too. I mean, deeply ingrained in a first century Jewish mind was simply the belief that we Jews do not associate with you ethnos, with you Gentiles, because Gentile is just simply the word ethnos. We, We don't go near you because we're superior to you. And throughout the book of Acts, I mean, what we find is God just constantly chipping away at any kind of ethnic-based superiority complexes that run deeply ingrained in humanity. You know, something else that stands out to me from the passage is just probably, I'm, I'm presuming, but probably both of these guys are, are out of their comfort zone, so to speak. Like, this has taken them out of their comfort level. I mean, Philip having to run up beside a foreign chariot and, and then to ask, to have the presence of mind to ask, you know, what are you reading? And, the, and then it's remarkable that the eunuch replies, he doesn't reply, beat it. He replies, actually, what I'm reading, I don't understand. Is there any way you can help me? Like, that strikes me as a remarkably humble <laughs> and prescient uh, response in the moment. Yeah, these, both of these guys are... Uh, outside of their comfort zone, and I think that the Spirit is one who takes us to uncomfortable places in order that we might create communities of belonging and inclusion. So a simple question for you to ask yourself this afternoon would, would be this. Is the Spirit urging you to run towards anybody? Um, is there someone that maybe he has been nudging you to move towards um, And there may be somebody here who, if you're just listening, if you're listening to the Spirit, I hope that you take the time to have a prayer life where you not only talk to God, but you just, you're quiet and you listen to God. And he might, he might actually be telling you um, to move into an uncomfortable place. And I'd recommend to you that if that's the case, follow him wherever he leads. One other note before moving on this first point. It's simply this, that we think this passage is the birthplace of African Christianity, which is something to be you know, truly celebrated. You know, one of the early church fathers, whose name is Irenaeus, he claimed that the eunuch, after his conversion, returned to Ethiopia, and he became a missionary to his people. Now, Irenaeus, maybe he made it up. Presumably, he had heard rumors, and the story had passed on to him, and, you know, voila, African Christianity is born. Remarkably, in 1900, there were 9 million Christians in Africa. In 2000, there were 380 million Christians. In the year 2025, there will be 760 million. Now, what does that, what does that tell you? I think it tells you several things. Number one, that colonialism in Christianity is not a very effective solution, is it? Because like, in colonial Christianity, what? You got 9 million Christians in Africa. What, what's happened in 
in the t- since 2000 and then, you know, in the, the 25 years of this, this millennium. I mean, it's exploded, and it's exploded. I think, that, I think the main reason why it's exploded is because it's no longer colonial European Christianity done in Africa. It is now African Christianity. That's what I hear when I talk to missionaries that are over there, that, that indeed, they're not trying to, like, recreate American churches over there. It is, it's their own culture. Um, and the same is true if you go to China today. It's not American Christianity in China. It's Chinese Christianity. Uh, you know, God has created such a wide panoply of different cultures in this, globally, you know, in the world. And Christianity should never have been tethered to colonialism because it never needed to go into a native culture, culture and tell them, like, here's what you must eat and here's how you must dress and here's the music, you, you know, you have to listen to. That was never God's design or intention. You know, the message has never been in true Christianity, like, in order to become a follower of Jesus, you must leave your culture behind. Rather, when it's true Christianity, it's going to draw from the best parts of indigenous culture and infuse that, the best parts, with God's story and use that to create a brand new kind of wonderful culture. And that's why um, our faith is the most diverse faith in the world today. I think that is something that if we talk to our neighbors in, in Phoenix and in Scottsdale and Mason and Gilbert, a lot of our neighbors who aren't believers, they probably don't realize that like Christianity is the most diverse of all of the world's uh, religions, you know. And that actually the dominant religion in America, arguably, is, is secular humanism. And actually, that's not a very diverse religion <laughs> when you think about it. Because the people who largely hold to uh, secular humanistic beliefs are simply, what, they're espoused primarily by white, northern, European, educated, and rich people. It's not, like, uh, it's not the, the religion of the poor. You know, what is the religion of the poor? It's Chinese Christianity, it's African Christianity, South American Christianity. Like, that is today's religion of the poor, um, and it's vitalized, and it's booming, and praise be to God that it started here in Acts chapter 8. All right, so number one, that was the runner. Number two, the seeker. Who is the seeker in this passage? And the answer to that is there may be more than one. Uh, the eunuch, we think he came, it says that he came from Ethiopia, but we think most likely that Ethiopia is not modern-day Ethiopia. It was actually somewhere in what is modern-day uh, southern Egypt. And so just for fun, I decided to pick a random city on Google Maps to just figure out, okay, random city, southern Egypt, how long, how, what kind of a distance is it from there all the way up to the city of Jerusalem? And I put it in, and I chart it, and, you know, there's no road that can take you from the middle of the desert in southern Egypt all the way up. But um, if you do it by foot, you know, it ends up being something along the lines of a thousand miles. He took a thousand-mile journey. I mean, think about a thousand-mile journey 2,000 years ago. That's the equivalent of going from Boise, Idaho, where we used to live, all the way down to Tucson, Arizona, um, in probably the heat of the summer, in a two-wheel vehicle with no suspension. <laughs> like, that's a long trip, a very uncomfortable trip. And I just, again, I let my imagination, maybe it went a little too far, but I started to imagine the conversation that he must have had with his employer when he wanted to get this time off of work. 
I mean, can you imagine him going to the queen and he says something along these lines, like, your royal highness, you know, I was hoping to go away for a little trip. And she says, well, how much time do you need? Well, it's a thousand miles, so I'm going to need several months. It would have been a several month trip. And she says, well, that's a long time for me to be without my, my chief financial officer. Why are you going? Reasonable question. Why are you going? And he says, I want to travel to Jerusalem because I want to worship Yahweh in his temple. What is she going to say to that? I mean, she's going to be like, what? We've got, we've got all kinds of temples here. We have our own gods. We have our own places of worship. There's a hundred temples for you, for you to choose from around here. Like, you, if, you, if you want to service your religious needs, we've got plenty of opportunities right here, basically. Why did he want to do it? I mean, why take such a dangerous, dangerous journey, thousand-mile journey in the ancient Near East, leaving your, your royal employer for months? Why would he do something like that? And I, I can only imagine that the answer is there was something he was looking for that he couldn't find where he was at. And that, that is, that's one of the most powerful um, ways that God brings us to the end of our rope, right? Is we finally wake up one day and realize there is something that I am looking for that I don't have, and I can't find it right here and right now. Eunuchs in the ancient Near East, um, what we know about them is they were former slaves. They were selected because of their extraordinary qualities, and they were brought into the royal court. But in order to protect the queen and the different princes, they had to be castrated you know, so that you know, we wouldn't have illegitimate children. That is a terrible price to pay, to make it to the highest echelons of power and status. I mean, for, for a eunuch to make it to the top like this guy did, it meant a whole host of things. It meant that he would never have a family, that he would never have children, that he would never, he would never pass on his family name to a, a future generation. He would never have a, a legacy. He had to pay an enormous price. Now, there's no way uh, to know exactly why he wanted to go to Judaism, but I have to think, I mean, the crowning jewel of Judaism was the temple in Jerusalem. I gotta think that somehow or another, God placed this desire into his heart that he would, he wanted to meet the living God in the beauty and the glory of the temple. And so he sets off on the journey, months, uncomfortable, danger, dusty, you know, all of that. What's wild about the story, and it's not written, but it, it's implied for somebody who knows something about the Old Testament. What's wild about the story is after all these hot, sweaty days where your chariot's sore, anticipating what's going to be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, the thousand-mile trip, when he finally gets to Jerusalem and he walks up to the doors of the temple, do you know what he finds there? He finds a sign that says, Do not enter if you're castrated, I mean, the Jews were, were very particular about who could go in, who, who gained access in the temple, who did not. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 3, it simply says that no castrated man is ever allowed into the temple to worship God. He would have stood out. They would have said, thou shalt not, you know, pass. Imagine the disillusionment that he could have found uh, at, at the end. You know, like, what was the point of this long journey? Maybe, was this just one wild spiritual goose chase? I, I almost wish that, that uh, 
Luke, our author, would have told us what transpired in the city during those days as he's maybe wandering it, just wondering, what am I going to do now? Because he can't go into the temple. Uh, He probably can't even go into a synagogue. What do I do now? And here's where I think it gets especially imaginatively interesting. We don't know what he did, but we do likely know that he acquired something in Jerusalem, something of immense value. The reason I say that he acquired it is because it was something so valuable that if you owned it, you would not take it with you on a thousand-mile journey uh, and and a thousand-mile back. He didn't have it when he set out from Ethiopia. Uh, Highly unlikely that he he did. Um, What does he acquire when he's in the city of Jerusalem? Anybody? What? Yes, an Isaiah scroll. And how did he do that? (laughs) Because those were not common. But it's not like every house, Jewish household had their own scroll to read from. Far from it. Like all you would have were scrolls in in, um, synagogues. And like in order to acquire an Isaiah scroll, he had to have spent a fortune. Now, fortunately, he had a fortune to spend. But I mean, he had to spend a fortune to come up with an Isaiah scroll. And so, I don't know if you've ever been to, say, a bar mitzvah service or a bar mitzvah service, been to synagogue, and you see them unroll the large scrolls. I mean, they're like this big. Um, The Isaiah scroll, Isaiah is a big book. Maybe, you know, not as big as, say, the Pentateuch scroll, but, I mean, something like this. He's got the scroll on his lap as he's headed back to his hometown, and At the very moment his eyes fall upon Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 and 7, he reads about a sufferer. Number three, like a a sheep, the sufferer was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Who is this person that is deprived of justice? Who is this person that experiences such deep humiliation that they're buried with the wicked, uh, whose life is taken away at at the pinnacle of of their prime? Uh, The eunuch is looking, he's looking at the running man beside him and says, who is this? Can you please explain it to me? And he invites him up into the chariot. And what does Philip say? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That this uh, word that was written uh, how many years ago? 500, 600 years prior, Isaiah? That God had Isaiah write a prophecy about an innocent victim. Um, maybe the, the, the eunuch would, would ask, well, if he's innocent, then why is he dying? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just like Shane read to us earlier. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Like, isn't it remarkable that the Bible's greatest statement about the substitutionary death of Jesus in the place of sinners would be the place that he was reading right then? (laughs) That right then, you know, reading about the cross. I mean, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're exploring Christianity, we believe that the cross is the instrument of human salvation. It's the place where Jesus died to take away, not his sins, because he had none, but the sins of the world. And we believe that the good news of the cross, the message of the cross, 
is not that like you and I need to live a good life and be more and more like Jesus. It's that Jesus, has, he's taken away all of our sins and he's given us his life, his righteousness, that we are hidden in the eyes of God, hidden in the sun in the eyes of God, and that Jesus has done everything. Uh, I came across this on the, this was a, a positive thing on the Christian Twitter, Twitter sphere. There's a lot of not so positives, but this, just not on your good days or your bad days or worst of days was salvation up to you. It was always up to Jesus alone. That, too, is a message that can be difficult to um, believe. And we'll read in a few chapters later in the book of Acts, the, er, one of the earliest threats to Christianity will come from a group of Jewish people who believe that basically the Christian gospel is, is Jesus plus circumcision. That's what they said, that, you know, if you are not a Jew, you need to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and be circumcised. But if that was the gospel, if that was the good news that, that Philip told to this eunuch, would that be good news? It would have been impossible news. But the gospel wasn't faith plus circumcision. The gospel was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Um, the, the, the gospel is true faith and that's it. And that's it. And that is what leads us into a new life. Number four, the fourth and final person is a newborn. Uh, they're driving along in the desert kind of funny that they would come upon water, but they do. And he's like, hey, there's water. I believe. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And they go down into the water. And so, you know, we have these different things in our faith. Like this table, the bread represents the body of Christ, and the wine represents the blood of Christ. That that is through the broken body of Jesus and through his outpoured blood that we are saved and we are also fed. Well, in baptism, the water, among other things, represents the cleansing of God, the, the forgiveness of our sins. As the water is poured over us or if he was dunked in the water, who, who knows? It, you kind of die to, to old way of life and you rise to a new life. Um, you know, we haven't had a baptism yet in our church plant, and that is something that I just started to pray earnestly for because that's really the first step into uh, when somebody believes in Jesus, the, the next step for them is to be baptized, to have God, you know, pour the water over them to symbolize their being forgiven of their sins. And so that's something I'd ask you to please pray for. Um, we set out to plant a church that would lead people who were not followers of Jesus into a relationship with Jesus. And man, um, maybe he could do that soon. <laughs> Easter, you know, historically was always a time when new converts to the faith were baptized. And right now, I don't have anybody scheduled to uh, be baptized on Easter uh, in our, our sunrise service. But like, why don't we pray for it? I mean, God can do something surprising, something beautiful, something that we didn't anticipate. The reason he can and will is because this is his heart. See, in the whole story, I think the underlying layer of it is that this eunuch was seeking after God, but in reality, you know, God was seeking him, right? God was seeking this man. God is the one who made him aware of the emptiness of wealth and power and status, you know, God is the one who put this desire in him to go on this long and arduous journey. God then is the one who does the disillusionment in his life by barring the doors of the temple. 
God is the one who somehow allows him to buy an Isaiah scroll. And then ultimately, God is the one who places a running man beside him on his chariot journey. And, you know, baptism is simply this. It is when you realize that it's God who's been seeking me all along. It's Jesus who's been seeking me, who's, who's loving me, and um, I'm ready to start a new life because that's what baptism symbolizes, new life. <clears throat> In conclusion, after the baptism, Philip, I don't know, does he just disappear? The, the passage is a little funky there. Does he like apparate to another part of the world? We don't really know. We just presume, though, that the eunuch got back into the chariot after his baptism, and what would he do most naturally? He'd continue reading in the Isaiah scroll. Well, guess what happens and is written in the Isaiah scroll, three chapters after Isaiah 53. There's a word specifically to eunuchs, <laughs> and it's this word. I forget exactly the verse number, but Isaiah 56 says, let not the eunuchs say, behold, I am a dry tree. And that imagery of a dry tree means, you know, I, I, I'm a dry tree. I, I can't have a family. Let not the eunuchs say, behold, I have a, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs in my house and within my walls, I will give a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And that's exactly what God did. In baptizing him, he was baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He's given a new name, a new family, a new community, the church. And what we need to do is ask for God to do some more of that um, with our neighbors and our friends. Amen.